This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 17th, 2019. I'm Sarah Kresge. On this week's show, we have investigative correspondent Charles Piller. He's back with a story on researchers ignoring reporting requirements and government agencies not enforcing those requirements. And I talk with Brett Finlay about connecting the dots between non-communicable diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer with our gut microbiomes. Could these diseases actually spread through the microbes that live in our gut? Now we have Charles Piller, our investigative correspondent. He's back with us this time to talk about I guess, lack of compliance and lack of enforcement of rules about reporting the results of clinical trials. Hi, Charles. Hi, Sarah. So let's talk about the requirements first. What is the general outline of this law regarding the results of clinical trials? The sponsors of clinical trials, which are experiments involving human subjects, Mm -hmm. are required to both register those trials and to report their results to a federal website called clinicaltrials.gov. Why is this a requirement? What was the the impetus for making mandatory reporting like this? Back in the 90s, it became apparent to many investigators and government officials that there was a huge problem with the peddling of drugs and the verification of their side effects having to do with hidden data associated with clinical trials, mostly trials conducted by drug companies, the companies often didn't want to reveal data that might show problems with the drugs, either side effects or perhaps ineffectiveness. And as a result, a lot of these trials weren't published. So the public, doctors, other researchers didn't know the efficacy and safety of some of these drugs. So there was a lot of concern about this. And in particular, there were some very troubling episodes. One that made a lot of headlines was associated with a drug called Paxil, an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. 
hidden data showed that it caused teenagers to consider suicide. This was, in effect, the opposite of what the drug's purpose would have been as an antidepressant. And because that data was not publicly known, it was often encouraged for use by teenagers until it was revealed in a lawsuit and in other venues that the problems were there. This stimulated a lot of activity legislatively, and a law was passed that required the registration and results reporting of clinical of most clinical experiments, not all, but many, many experiments. This law has been on the books for a while, but actually a few years ago, after years of noncompliance across the board, there was new rules issued, new penalties issued. Can you talk about what brought that on? A lot of attention was paid to this starting around 2015, in which individual sponsors of these experiments, universities, drug companies, or other institutions that run these trials, were named as basically ignoring the law. And because of this embarrassment factor, a lot started to improve their performance. Unfortunately, not all that well. And for years and years and years, the FDA and the National Institutes of Health, which are responsible for enforcing the law, basically haven't done so. And Mm -hmm. back in 2016, they said, look, we're going to begin to enforce this law. But first, we are presenting a final rule, a rule that specifies details of what's expected in the registration process and the reporting process and what the penalties will be if these sponsors of the trials fail to comply with the law. And this was important because people had been complaining that there were ambiguities and uncertainties in that process. So the idea was that beginning in 2017, when the new final rule took effect, there'd be no more excuses. So you looked at the compliance after this big change that started in 2017. They've had a few years to get on board. Did you see any differences? Well, I did see some differences. So, for example, most of the major drug companies have improved their compliance. And some of the major drug companies have what you might call perfect compliance with the letter of the law since this new final rule took effect in 2017. So that's Mm -hmm. very positive. And there has been some improvement by some academic organizations as well. In some cases, very significant improvement. But overall, there is still widespread problems with reporting. And what I found was that in well over half of all cases for trial reports that were due during this new period since the final rule was put into effect, that in most cases, they were not reported at all or not reported Mm -hmm. on the deadline given by the new rule. These are institutions like universities, actually the NIH. This is, these are big places that have a lot of staff. Indeed. Ironically, the NIH, whose own internal studies are covered by this rule and studies that they sponsor for external grantees, that's a small fraction of the overall NIH-funded studies, but still a large number of clinical studies overall. NIH is one of the worst examples of not following the law, either violating the deadlines or not supplying results at all. What percent of the registered trials have reported their results? Out of the 4,700 plus trials that we looked at, 
Now, these are 100% of all the trials due as of September 25th, which is the date we collected the data. Out of all of those trials, only 45% followed the law. 55% were in violation of the law, either by not reporting results at all or reporting results after the prescribed deadline. We're not really seeing a great level of compliance. But when you looked at the enforcement side, I feel like things are even worse because what kind of enforcement actions have been taken? Well, this is the most perplexing part of the process because when this new rule was rolled out, both the NIH and the FDA said, look, we've been holding off on enforcement for years and years because of the complaints and questions about ambiguities or uncertainty about how to follow the rules and the law. Now that we have this final rule in place, those days are over. We're going to enforce. And enforcement means the FDA could be charging monetary penalties of $12,000 plus per day per trial for every day that it's late. The NIH could withhold grant funding to sponsors of trials who don't report their results as required by law. Those are some serious teeth on that law. It would be very strong penalties if they were enforced. So what I found is despite the promises to enforce, it's never been enforced once. No penalty has ever been made by the FDA for a single trial, and no funds have been withheld by NIH for a single trial that violated the reporting law, not once. Moreover, the NIH promised to create what NIH Director Francis Collins called a wall of shame as a disincentive for breaking the law. And this wall of shame was going to be a notification on clinicaltrials.gov that a trial was out of compliance with the law. But notwithstanding that fact that thousands of trials are out of compliance, not one notification has been created. There is no wall of shame. Wow. How are you able to find out that no enforcement actions have taken place by either agency? Strangely enough, it's easy to find out. You just ask them and they explain <laughs> that they've never enforced the law. So, Do they say why? They do say why. They say, we believe in voluntary compliance. In other words, they're going back on mm -hmm. the specific threats that they made when they rolled out the new rule where they said, look, we're serious. We're going to enforce this as needed in the future. Turns out, not so much. They're not enforcing it. The great thing about clinicaltrials.gov is that you can easily see which trials are out of compliance that have failed to provide the results by the deadline. It's all there in black and white. It's not a mysterious process. And yet FDA says, no, we require non-public information. So this is information that's either protected by trade secrets or protected by other measures of the law. So when you say the non-public information is required, you mean the FDA is saying, well, there's some pieces of information that you're not privy to that we know about that mean that these guys are all probably in compliance. That's the implication. Oh. The fact of the matter is that the law spells out very specifically what information is not mm -hmm. public. And the database source that is used for this investigation, which is the Trials Tracker Project at Oxford University, very specifically excludes any trials that might have non-public information that would preclude them from being violators. Now, for this 
article, I reached out to the NIH and also to a bunch of other sponsors of these trials that are specifically named in the story. And I said, here's the data I've got for you. Here's where I see you being out of compliance. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if any of this is inaccurate. Not one of those entities, including the NIH, said that I was wrong in any case. What kinds of reasons do they give for not obeying this law? The sponsors who are not complying with the law often say that it's cumbersome and that they're trying their best. They're adding staff or they're trying to improve their internal process for tracking and reporting on trials. This may well be true, and I take them at their word that they're trying. The problem is that this is not rocket science. It's a very simple process. It takes time. It takes diligence. It takes effort to be able to provide the data. But these are scientists who are doing complex experiments. And this is part of what their work is. The excuse that it's too difficult or they're unable to do it properly because they've got other stuff to do, it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you're considering that this is a legal obligation, not just a legal obligation, but it's an ethical obligation to the volunteers for these trials. And it's an ethical obligation to preserve the credibility of evidence-based medicine by providing these results that are so important to other studies and how they're designed. You know, you've been following this for quite a while. What do you see as the biggest consequences to non-compliance and non-enforcement of this rule? There's several consequences that I think are critical. One is that the clinicaltrials.gov database we know is very well used by researchers, patients, and doctors. There's millions of visits to that site every month. People are hungry for information about what kinds of treatments have potential. The researchers need the information because they're the ones who are designing future studies and they have to know what worked, what didn't work, and whether their studies are needlessly spending money on something that's already been well-developed or perhaps exploring something that they need new insights to and maybe to apply those insights to their own studies. That's one part of it. And if the data is not there, they can't find it and they can't adjust effectively. Mm -hmm. For doctors who are interested in whether a drug or a device is efficacious and safe for their patients, often they need clinicaltrials.gov for this reason. Many times when results are bad or ambiguous, they're not published in journals. Mm -hmm. Clinicaltrials.gov is the only place you're going to see those results. Moreover, the great thing about clinicaltrials.gov is that it has a common format for the presentation of results. Consequently, you can compare results of a single drug over several different trials pretty easily, more easily often than is the case, even if they are published in journals mm -hmm. with their various formats and ways of presenting data. So it sounds like there's a lot that we're missing out on. What is going to happen next? Do you think there's going to be some response to this article? Well, I certainly hope so. I know that in the past when I've written about this topic, it has generated a lot of interest because there are so many stakeholders and there's so much involved in how important these data are. So I'm hopeful that that'll be the case. That said, what we found in the past is the practice of naming and shaming. In other words, calling out the entities and individuals who are flouting this important law 
has been the most effective way of getting people to change their behavior, especially given that the government seems disinclined to actually enforce the law as they should be. And you will find those names in the article online, right? You will indeed. Thank you so much, Charles. Thanks, Sarah. Charles Piller is an investigative correspondent for science. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Brett Finlay about links between the microbiome and non-communicable diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Brett Finlay, this week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than science careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Play and colleagues write this week in science about the possibility that what we think of as non-communicable diseases like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, they might actually be passed from one person to the next via the microbiome. Hi, Brett. Hi. Well, when I think of diseases like this, we're talking um, non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease, diabetes. I tend to think of factors like genetics or lifestyle contributing to these diseases. Is there something different about the microbiomes of people with these conditions? What we've known for quite a while now is that people with these non-communicable diseases, they do have different microbiomes. And that's been noted, but we didn't really know, are they causing it? Is just because your gut is inflamed? Of course, you have different microbes than someone that doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease, for example. Are we kind of blurring this line between communicable and not communicable? The concept that we're proposing here, and there is a question mark in the title, we do not know this for <laughs> sure yet, and, but the hypothesis we want to put forward involves two things. One is that, as you said, people with these non-communicable diseases have different microbes. And we also know that when you take microbes from these people with, say, inflammatory bowel disease and put them in animal models, you then can re-trigger the disease. And the third piece to the puzzle that we really now know about the microbiome is that we share our microbes with people close to us. Your microbes are more similar to someone you're living with than your identical twin sister that lives on the other side of the world, for example. And we know mothers transmit microbes to babies, etc. If you put all those things together, if microbes are potentially involved in these non-communal diseases, and if you can swap microbes between people, that takes the obvious kind of hypothesis. Well, maybe by living with people, we can actually transmit these diseases to some extent. What about the evidence in households? Is there an incidence, a higher incidence of these non-communicable diseases in two people who live together? Well, that goes straight to the heart of the matter. And, and for some diseases, there are. For example, inflammatory bowel disease, there's much more higher incidence there. Cancer, there's not so much. 
There's no data really on atherosclerosis, which heart attacks and strokes yet. But obesity is, although it's technically not considered non-computable disease in itself, it's the number one risk factor for heart attacks, strokes, type Mm -hmm. 2 diabetes, and things like this. It's really well known that you can take feces from a fat mouse, put it in a thin mouse, it will get fat and vice versa. And you can even take human feces and do that. There's even articles where they call it a social contagion. And if you have an obese friend, you have a 57% higher chance of you being obese. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't say it's microbes. It could be saying that, you know, both like, you know, certain restaurants or foods or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, How do you disentangle, you know, what comes first, food, environment or microbes? And then which yeah. one is a result and which one is the cause? They are intimately tangled up. You're really right. And that is a difficulty in putting this whole sort of hypothesis forward. As a microbiologist, whenever someone says to me environment, I immediately think microbes because pretty much everything you do with your environment is seen through a filtering of microbes. Whatever you touch, whatever you eat, there's this veneer of microbes that are basically translating all that. So it's a great question. How do we untangle this? And that is the biggest problem right now. But I think there's a lot of correlations. There was an interesting study, for example, U.S. military families that were stationed for two years in high and low BMI counties, and you could predict what happened to these people in those two years. That still doesn't prove it's microbes, but they could be associated with people with these microbes that may cause these things. Right. You try to take this puzzle apart systematically in your article. The way we tackled it in the paper is that in infectious diseases, there's a classic set of rules to define whether a pathogen causes a disease. And these are called Koch's postulates, named after Robert Koch, a famous microbiologist. What these rules say is that the disease microbe should be in the person with the disease and not in the healthy person. And if you allow us the freedom of saying that these dysbiotic microbes, the ones that are, you know, that we see in these people with disease, if we collectively, let's call that sort of the pathogen for the, causing the disease. Mm-hmm. We know that postulate is true, that they are present in people with disease that are not present in healthy people. And then the second part of these rules are that you then take that potential disease-causing organism and put it in a mouse model and cause disease. And again, if we take this collection of microbes, this has been done many times for inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, um, atherosclerosis, many of these different things. You can then transfer those microbes into a mouse model and they cause disease. And then the last part is you then should be able to isolate these disease-causing microbes out of that animal, which of course you can do. Right. And for one of these, uh, arthrosclerosis, you have a mechanism. This is where you can draw a line between what the microbes are doing, what the body is doing, and the disease state. Right. So for atherosclerosis, which does lead to heart attacks and strokes, we know that when you eat red meat, microbes break down a molecule in the red meat, which then gets oxidized in the body. And that molecule causes this disease. And in germ-free mice that have no microbes, you can give them all these red meat things you want and they don't get atherosclerosis. And vegans and vegetarians, for example, they have very low levels of atherosclerosis because they're not eating the red meat that leads to this molecule. And you can also, in animal models, if you drug microbial enzymes that do that first step, so you block the microbes from breaking that down, you feed them a, a red meat diet, you can block the disease. One other wrench we can throw in this is the fact that, you know, we're talking about these microbiota being different in people with these diseases, but there's not necessarily a specific bad guy that you can point to. It's more just it's there's something off about it, right? 
in many diseases, there are profiles of microbes that are associated with disease. There is no one single pathogen that causes atherosclerosis, for example. We will not find a particular microbe, I doubt if we will, that causes all cancer, for example. We would have found it long ago. We have a pretty good way of saying that your microbes are dysbiotic or bad. We're, we're okay with that. But what we really have, <laughs> we struggle with is what is a normal, healthy microbiome? Right. I mean, yours and mine, we're healthy, but we're completely different. Well, how can that be? What you have to realize in the microbiome world is that we all have different microbes, but they all are performing, you know, fairly common functions. So when you start to break them down or what are they doing, what molecules are they making, you can come up with better ways of classifying them. Do you think that you, you know, using this profile of the functionality of the microbes and some of these other community-based approaches, do you think you might find similar mechanisms that you see in arthrosclerosis, mm-hmm. in obesity, or in diabetes? Yes, I, I think very much so. And I think that's where the field is heading. I mean, I think we're all trying to get beyond the microbes and more into what do they actually do in terms of metabolisms and molecules and things. Right. This piece that you wrote really builds a case for looking further into this relationship between non-communicable diseases and uh, the bacteria that we live with. What types of research are you hoping to spur with it? First of all, the concept. Most people that work on non-communicable diseases, they don't think about microbes. They think about the environment. But we know diet, for example, has a major role in many of these things. And what does diet do? It affects your microbes and pretty much many of the things you eat and chew on, the microbes digest these things. You actually don't even bother encoding enzymes to do that. So I think the first thing is get people thinking in this area and get them starting to ask these questions. I couldn't find any data on spousal rates of atherosclerosis, for example, Hmm. yet that's the number one non-communicable disease out there. IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, type 2 diabetes. There's lots of great examples there. For example, inflammatory bowel disease, if you're of Eastern Indian descent and you live in India, they have probably some of the lowest rates of IBD in the world. Yet when they move to North America or Britain, for example, and they still eat, quote, Indian food, they have by far the highest rates of IBD. They're not genetically changed by doing that. So the question is, what changed? If they're eating the same foods and things, you could argue they're being exposed to sort of this Western microbiome, which Hmm. in a lot of senses is actually not all that good for us. What's so bad about the Western microbiome? It's not how our ancestors lived. And you think how we were living a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago, we know that the microbes are very, very different in people that live like that versus when you're living in a city in a sterile environment and eating sterilized food and using hand sanitizers and using lots of vaccines and (laughs) antibiotics. And it's tough on the microbes. (laughs) Yeah, it is really tough. I know there's fecal microbial transplantation between people. That's happened. Yep. But that's typically for a very, as a very specific bowel infection. Yeah. Is there more kinds of research being done with that to tackle some of the questions that you're bringing up here? Well, fecal transfers have been really proven to work nicely for clostridium difficile, basically an intestinal pathogen you get when you take antibiotics for other reasons that crawls in and antibiotics don't really cure it very well. And fecal transfers do a marvelous job. So that's the number one reason it's used for. There's a lot of clinical trials involved fecal transfers, many other quote, diseases, such as inflammatory bowel diseases, autism. They're trying it in many different things. The ethics of doing what we're proposing in non-communicable diseases, you know, if you take a healthy person and put in microbes from an unhealthy person, ask, do they get disease or not? You can't really do that. Right. Could you go the other way? 
You could. Um, the problem is these are often chronic diseases that take many right. years. So there was one report of a, a fecal transfer where it was a heavy set healthy person into thin person and thin person was cured of IBD, but also became quite obese. So the ideas are out there. Well, if you were heavier, could you do a fecal transfer to lose weight? Um, that's a scary proposition, but it's certainly been thought of. And really the research in the future is trying to uncouple all these things. And it's a very tough thing to unravel the microbiome from, say, a diet change or a change in the environment because they really go hand in hand. But it does have big implications in just world health and health policies and you know public health planning. Right. These non-communicable diseases are now the dominant source of mortality around the globe. It used to be infectious disease, and now it's these more like chronic killers. They cause about 70% of deaths around the world right now. So that's what most people die of. Even in developing countries, these non-communicable diseases are, are rapidly rising. It's really a different way of looking at it. And I know it's provocative, and I expect it to be told as much many times over. But I also think that if, you know, remember when he go back to pylori came along, right. a bacterium causing ulcers. They thought the investigators were absolutely crazy, but they were actually right. And I think there's enough smoking guns for several non-communicable diseases that there's actually a lot of pretty, pretty tantalizing and supportive results coming along. In many cases, there's no doubt there's a microbial association. And the question is, how strong is it? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brett. Absolutely pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Brett Finlay is a professor of microbiology at the University of British Columbia. You can find a link to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.